about a fictional civilization, the Buribunks. Every person in this civilization has a personal typewriter. Every Buribunk, regardless of sex, is obligated to keep a diary on every second of his or her life. These diaries are handed over on a daily basis and collated by district. A screening is done according both to subject and personal index. Then, while rigidly enforcing copyright for each individual entry, All entries of an erotic, demonic, satiric, political, and so on nature are subsumed accordingly, and writers are catalogued by district. Thanks to a precise system, the organisation of these entries in a card catalogue allows for immediate identification of relevant persons and their circumstances. The diaries are presented in monthly reports to the chief of the Buribunk department, who can, in this manner, continuously supervise the psychological evolution of his province and report to a central agency. The Buribunks use the typewriter to reflect on themselves. The information they record is archived in a database where it is analysed by officials. They use the information to both monitor the thoughts of individuals, the mood of particular regions, and as a kind of market research to create entertainment and culture that reflects the interests of Buribunk citizens. Schmidt's story just flattens me. Here he is in 1918 looking at the typewriter. He sees a device that standardises written script which enables vast amounts of information to be created, stored and processed. Schmidt sees in the typewriter the beginning of a civilization where everyday life is extensively recorded. In 1918, what he sees is not just the smartphone, the wearable, the social media platform, but also the kind of personhood and society that would go along with it. Here's a critical point in his story. The Buribunks are very liberal. They can write whatever they like in their diary. They can even write about how they hate being made to write a diary, but they cannot not write in the diary. So you can say whatever you like, but you cannot say nothing. You must make your thoughts, movements, moods and feelings visible to a larger technocultural system. Schmidt here envisions a mode of social control that doesn't depend on limiting the specific ideas people express, but rather works by making their ideas visible so that they can be worked on and modulated. I find this aspect of Buribunktum startling. Not because Schmidt is the only one to articulate a mode of control like this. Of course, other critical thinkers in the 20th century have too, Foucault, Deleuze and Zizek, to name some. I find it interesting because here in 1918, we have someone seeing personal media devices operating to manage the processes of representation and reconnaissance. Here, media technology is understood as both instruments for symbolic communication and for data collection. So, here we are, a hundred years later, and we are the Buribunks. We use our smartphones every day to record reams of information about our lived experience. Our expressions, our preferences, conversations, movements, mood, sleep patterns, and so on. This information is catalogued in enormous commercial and state databases and it's used to shape the culture that we are immersed in. Importantly, this system works by granting us individual freedom to express ourselves and places relatively few limits on what we can say. But this system does demand our participation. Participation here is a kind of forced choice. 
Very few of us successfully navigate everyday life without leaving behind data about our movements, our preferences, habits, and so on. Schmidt imagined a large government bureaucracy where information would be stored on index cards. It was a kind of vast analogue database. Of course, instead of this, we have complex networks now of digital databases owned by major platforms. Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Netflix. And these databases function as enormous market research engines that capture and process information, which is used to shape our cultural world. What Schmidt saw in the typewriter has congealed in the smartphone. The smartphone is the critical device in a culture organised around the project of the self, the work of reflecting on and expressing the self as a basic task in everyday life. And super importantly, these tasks are shaped by the tools that we use to accomplish them. Here's a famous line from Nietzsche about his typewriter, which he experimented with in the late 19th century. Our writing tools are also working on our thoughts. What did he mean? As we use media technologies to reflect on and express ourselves, we become entangled with them. They shape the way we think, act, and express ourselves. They shape the way we imagine the possibilities of expression. And we might say that in our own minds, we begin to think like typewriters, or films, or smartphones. We think using their grammar, rhythms, and conventions. So, with the typewriter and the smartphone, we might say that these devices work on us in the sense that they facilitate a process through which we monitor and record data about ourselves. Okay, so I've suggested here that in Schmidt's early 20th century story, we can see the prehistory of the smartphone. Well, Kate Crawford and her colleagues actually offer us a study of this history. They trace the genealogy of devices and practices that we use to weigh ourselves since the 19th century through to present-day devices like self-trackers and Fitbits. Think about how the Fitbit talks to us in its advertisements. The Fitbit is presented as a radically new technology offering precise information about the real state of our bodies. This knowledge will be useful to us. It will make us fitter, happier, more desirable and more productive. What Crawford and co remind us is that this set of claims are not all that new. Devices that work on or shape our thoughts and feelings about our bodies have been around for a long time. And weight scales are one example. From the 19th century onwards, both the cultural uses and technical capacities of weight scales have changed bit by bit. In cultural terms, weight scales have shifted from the doctor's office to the street to the home. They've gradually changed from a specialist medical device used only by the doctor to public entertainment to private everyday domestic discipline. So here's a run-through of Crawford's narrative. Doctors began monitoring and recording patients' weight toward the latter end of the 19th century, but this was not really routine until the 20th century. In 1885, the public penny scale was invented in Germany, which then appeared in the US in grocery and drug stores. Modelled after the grandfather clock with a large dial, the customer stepped on the weighing plate and placed a penny in the slot. Some penny scales rang a bell when the weight was displayed, while others played popular songs like the Anvil Chorus or Oh Promise Me. The machines would also dispense offerings to lure people into weighing themselves in public, such as pictures of movie stars, horoscopes, gum and candy. Built-in games such as Guess Your Weight would return your penny if you accurately placed the pointer at your weight before measurement. 
However, the extraction of money in exchange for data was the prime aim of the manufacturers. It's like tapping a gold mine, claimed the Mills Novelty Company brochure in 1932. The domestic weight scale first appeared in 1913, a smaller, more affordable device for the home. It allowed for self-management in private to offset the embarrassment of publicly recording one's weight with attendant noises and songs. The original weight scale is an analogue or technical form of media. Our body weight makes an impression on a mechanism that is calibrated to record it on the scale. As a media device, it collects and presents information to us, but it's also important to consider how it is configured in broader social and identity-making processes. There is a gendered history of these devices. Public weight scales were initially marketed to men, but in the 1920s, women started to be encouraged to diet. Weight scales were presented to women as a private bathroom device to monitor their bodies, thus becoming a tool to know and manage ourselves. Here's Crawford's account of this. Tracking one's weight via the bathroom scale was not only about weight management. As early as the 1890s, it assumed a form of self-knowledge. This continues today, where value and self-worth can be attached to the number of pounds weighed. Crawford refers to a study where a participant in an eating disorders group was asked how she feels if she does not weigh herself. I don't feel any way until I know the number on the scale. The numbers tell me how to feel. Listen to that. That's basically Nietzsche's claim about the typewriter. The device is working on my thoughts. The numbers tell me how I feel. Similar claims are made about self-tracking devices. There are accounts of self-tracking and internalised surveillance taken to an extreme by people suffering from eating disorders. So the history of weight scales reminds us that tracking devices are agents in shifting the process of knowing and controlling bodies, both individually and collectively, as they normalise and sometimes antagonise human bodies. The Fitbit turns the body's movement into digital data. Daily steps, distance travelled, calories burned, sleep quality and so on. And this is then fed into a finely tuned algorithm that looks for motion patterns. There are two things at work here in this sequence from the personal weight scale through to the self-tracker like a Fitbit. One, a moral epistemology. Knowing one's weight and body habits can lead to an improved and possibly ideal self and life. And two, an economic imperative. Penny scales were significant money-making enterprises, and there was often a strong profit motive in encouraging people to weigh themselves. This exchange of money for data is clear. Spend a penny, receive a datum. But the collection of data is also private, going no further unless the user willingly shared it with others. This is less clear in self-trackers. The user can reflect on their own data, but that data will always be shared with the device maker and a range of unknown parties. What is then done with that data is not transparent and ultimately at the discretion of the company. Consumer data are mediated by a smartphone app or an online interface, and the user never sees how their data is aggregated, analysed, sold or repurposed, and nor do they get to make active decisions about how that data is used. As a tagline for an advertisement for the wearable Microsoft Band states, this device can know me better than I know myself and can help me be a better human. So then, Crawford argues, the wearable and the weight scale offer the promise of agency through mediated self-knowledge within rhetorics of normative control and becoming one's best self. On one hand, the ability to know more through data can be experienced as pleasurable and powerful, the promise of which is evident in this advertisement for the Microsoft Band. Limits are things to go beyond. Got it. I'm on my way. 
to look at in your rearview mirror while you move forward. So live with nothing standing in your way. Introducing the new Microsoft Band for people who want to live healthier and achieve more. Okay, and then on and on it goes, like never-ending corporate brand vomit. With Microsoft Band, there are no limits to what you can do. So do great things. But also, here's the basic claim Microsoft are making. Buy this device and it will work on you. It will change you. What wearables like the Microsoft Band and the Fitbit achieve that the personal weight scale could not is the real-time aggregation of data about all the bodies of all the users and the feeding back of this information to each individual user via customised screens. Again here, Schmidt's bureau bunks had paper index cards and human scale analysis of expressions, but the Fitbit enables real-time biological analysis of millions of bodies. Here's Crawford. Statistical comparisons between bodies are necessarily contingent on a set of data points. Users get a personalised report, yet the system around them is designed for mass collection analysis, so the user becomes a body amidst other tracked bodies. The user only gets to see their individual behaviour compared to a norm, a speck in the larger sea of data. Drawing on the work of Julie E. Cohen, Crawford argues that this functions as a biopolitical public domain designed to assimilate individual data profiles within larger patterns and nudge individual choices and preferences in directions that align with those patterns. So while there is a strong rhetoric of participation and inclusion, there is a near-complete lack of transparency regarding algorithms, outputs and uses of personal information. And this is a critical point. Mark Andrejevic calls this the big data divide, the difference between individuals who record their data and the corporations who collect and process that data. The lesson, then, is to think about the evolution of media devices for collecting, storing, processing and disseminating information over a 100-year period, as well as the individual and social facets of digital media. The Fitbit and similar tracking devices that collect data about us and present that data back to us as customised and individualised media content a part of a much larger, historically conditioned system of social control. The data that we give and view at an individual level is logged in databases that operate at the population level. These devices are implicated in a cultural process based on self-monitoring and self-improvement. They work on our thoughts. And importantly, these devices normalise data-driven participation and computation in our everyday lives. They become a foundational model for how we do our lives, bodies and identities. We sit down every day, like the Bury Bunks, to type out an account of ourselves.